I'm often, uh, when I engage people in conversation over the Christian faith, I'm often confronted with this idea that uh, the Christian faith is really, uh, if it were to be defined, we're really a bunch of rules and regulations. It's kind of heavy and burdensome. That's what people often say to me about the Christian faith. Perhaps that's your experience or perhaps some experience of folks that you know, that you hear of the Christian faith and there's this kind of wet blanket feel that comes upon you. I want to try today to separate this counterfeit faith, what often masquerades as faith, from true faith in Jesus Christ. I think that's Matthew's point as we kind of re-enter this gospel. Matthew's goal is to hold up Jesus Christ and to make his identity clear to us, such that we be drawn to him, that he's the unique Savior, Son of God, the King of God's new kingdom. That's the intent. If you remember what we've studied so far in Matthew, in the first four chapters, he has gone to great lengths to speak about Jesus having unique origins. I mean, he has a unique birth, right? Virgin. He has a unique lineage to Abraham. He had a unique baptism where God spoke from heaven. He had a unique confrontation with Satan. So so his origins, he is a unique king. He is not the -the run-of-the-mill king. He's unique. And this unique king came and gave unique teaching. So in chapters 5, 6, and 7, you have the Sermon on the Mount. That's where Jesus begins to rewrite law, if you will. He says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Well, this king now is giving authoritative teaching. Now, this is kind of audacious, these new beginnings, this new teaching. But then he backs it up with this unique divine power. In chapters 8 and 9, he has 10 miracles, three sets of three plus one, where Jesus begins to defeat disease and he overcomes demons, and he defeats death. So now he's backing up with some sheer power all these claims that he had made. And then you move into chapter 10, and he calls his disciples to himself. He's reconstituting Israel, is what he's doing. Twelve apostles supplanting twelve tribes. This is the new kingdom that God is now going to spread his glory out on the world. And then all of a sudden, It turns in chapter 10 where people begin, as the message goes out, as this great great message is declared, people begin to reject him. They turn against him. They don't believe him. And now in chapter 12, it's even the religious leadership. Those trained, those called to shepherd the people of Israel, they're rejecting him too. And that's what we're going to find here. Although the conflict we're going to read about is about the Sabbath, I don't think Matthew's point is to teach us how to do a new Sabbath. His point is this. His point is that the reality of Jesus is going to both confront and defeat this man-made religion that the Sabbath is a window to. The Sabbath would be like the battleground where this divine heavenly faith centered on Christ and the gospel confronts man-made religion. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to read the first 14 verses. Matthew chapter 12, I'll read 1 through 14. And we're going to see Jesus deal with the false religion that I'm going to argue many of us may have slipped into or are always susceptible to. Matthew 12, 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. They began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. 
He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how the Sabbath, how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Okay, so this is the conflict. I want to set it up kind of a two-part sermon. One is going to be the exposing of a false religion and its fruit. So we're going to look at the false religion of the Pharisees, going to draw some parallels to how we kind of slip into the same thing, and then Jesus is going to present a true religion, a true religion which is with himself at the center. So look with me just at the first couple of verses. At that time, going through grain fields on the Sabbath, they were hungry, they began to pluck heads of grain, rub them probably between their hands and eat. When they saw it, they accused them that it was doing, what they were doing was not lawful on the Sabbath. Now let me make clear here. Um, you could walk through a person's field and pick heads of grain, rub it together and eat it and be satisfied. And there was a gracious provision in the law for the person to eat, to personally consume that which they could eat as they walked. You weren't to bring a John Deere in there and harvest the guy's field, but if you were walking through, you could pick some heads of grain. It was just the mercy of God. Their issue was not with picking heads of grain, but their issue was with him doing it on the Sabbath. See, the Sabbath was a time of no work. It was a time of ceasing from labor. Now, the Sabbath was important to Israel, not just because it differentiated them from the rest of the world, but when they failed to honor the Sabbath, they were sent into exile for all those years. And so what the Pharisees did, and, and, and really the best case scenario is they're trying to build a fence around the law to help people not inadvertently cross it. But what the Pharisees did was they came up with 39 different categories of work. It, crazy. Even down to not reaping and threshing. Now that's one thing to say don't reap and thresh the field, but they boiled it down to even just personal consumption. So they turned the blessing of the Sabbath into a curse by just wrapping rules around it. You see the same thing in the second incident. Jesus goes into the synagogue. He sees a man with a withered hand. They ask him. They say, hey, uh, is it lawful to heal? Now, obviously, they're baiting him. Now, the man with the withered hand, the word withered means shriveled. So probably some muscular dysfunction probably had existed for a long time. But I would imagine it would have been a terrible plate for him. But, but they're asking, is it lawful? Because to the Pharisee, to their oral tradition... To heal, if there was an emergency or an immediately threatening situation, was okay to do on the Sabbath, but not if it could wait. If it was non-life-threatening, it can wait till tomorrow. See, what the Pharisees were doing was they were taking the Sabbath and they were wrapping it with, there was more regulation than the insurance industry. 
I mean, it was incredible how much red tape they wrapped around the nature of keeping the Sabbath. Now, keep in mind what the Sabbath is for. This command to honor and keep the Sabbath was fourth commandment. God gave it to the people. Why? Well, because God did it. So go back to Genesis 1 and 2, and you'll find that God worked for six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. Now, God did not rest because he needed a break. God rested to enjoy all that he had made. And his rest meant that he created it perfectly. He didn't look around and think, well, I should be changing that, and I've got to do a better job over here, and I need to tweak this part of creation. What he created was perfect. He sat and enjoyed it, just enjoyed all that he made. And the blessing of the Sabbath to the man and the woman was that they would enjoy it with him, that he's inviting us in to say, look at all that I have made as a reflection of my glory. So the Sabbath for the man and the woman and for us was a time of not working, but, but not being idle, but resting in God finding in him all the glory that he displays in creation and recognizing he'll love us, he'll take care of us. It's a good time to reorient our minds. It's a good time to come to terms with life, to confess, to worship. And, and these Pharisees had turned it into this legalistic red tape day where you couldn't do anything and really restricted it, moved it from being a blessing to a burden. Now, this becomes really a picture of man-made religion. This idea of, of wrapping so many rules around God's blessing that the blessing ceases to be just that. It tends to be a burden. And that's what these Pharisees have done. And this is really the nature of any religion outside of Christianity. See, we think of, when you think of Christianity of rules, that's a caricature. That's a caricature of Christianity. Man-made religion is always concerned with details of what you do to make yourself right with God. A man-made religion, a legalistic religion, is trying to find in our behavior this form of acceptance with God. So let me give you a, a quote from Tim Keller. He says, in all religions, people believe if there is a God, you relate to him by being good. While there are many variations, the logic is the same. If I perform, if I obey, I'm accepted. And legalism is just that, trying to find acceptance by keeping some strict code of behavior. Legalism will always have a set of things to do to earn greater favor with God. In other words, this is the nature of a man-made, a legalistic religion, is that there is some code of behavior that you have to follow to find acceptance with God. It's kind of, it leaves you in in despair, or it leaves you in arrogance if you're doing well. It's kind of a he loves me, he loves me not religion. If you have a really good week, and you've, you've honored that code of behavior that you deem that you need to do to be accepted by God, then you're feeling really good. If you've had a terrible week, if you've just been just swallowed up in your own lusts, and you've pursued them to their ends, then you feel absolutely distant in despair with God. And so you feel like he loves me one week, he doesn't love me the next week, that if God's acceptance is conditioned upon you meeting some code of behavior, you are going to be like this throughout your religious life. And this is the problem with these Pharisees, man-made religion. You know, the fr and perhaps that's what you're struggling with right now. If you do find that your soul goes up and down based upon your behavior, you may be this kind of closet legalist. 
I mean, most of us are the older brother types in life. We really do sense God's happiness with us based primarily on what we do. This doesn't deny faith. You can be a legalist and believe. That's the dangerous thing. I believe, but I also believe I've got to do these things. And it leads us in this track to either arrogance or just, just absolutely despair that we're not able to keep up with it. And you know if it's in your life by the fruit that it bears. Let, let me just give you some, some pieces of fruit that will kind of rise up from the life that is kind of a closet legalist or those of us who are still trying to find acceptance with God through our behavior. Number one, it has a divisive nature to it. It has a divisive nature. And in other words, and let me give you a quote from one author about legalism. He said, legalism is trying to erect specific requirements of conduct beyond the teaching of Scripture and making adherence to them the means by which a person is qualified for full participation in the family of God. Do you hear what it's saying there? It's saying that there is a specific requirement. You can believe, but there are other requirements that you must do to be fully participating in the family of God. Now, we have that today. I mean, it may be a dress code for you, that if I were to be up here in shorts, you would be aghast. We do have a pool out there, so I will be in shorts. But, but there's a code of behavior that, that you have to live. You have to dress a certain way. Or, or it may be, it may be a, a schooling preference, that if you don't homeschool or if you don't go to private school, that, that that becomes the gravitational pull rather than the gospel. Or Reformed theology. While we may be Reformed here, that's not equivalent to the gospel. Jesus Christ saves. Or perhaps it's charismatic gifts, that if you don't speak in tongues... You're somehow less than. If you don't, I remember applying for a prison ministry. The first question was, what did I think about the gospel? Did I believe the gospel? The next question was, had I had the second blessing? Can I speak in tongues? Now, I imagine in their minds they weren't equivalent. It sure did look that way when I filled out the form. Or the dress code. We went up to War, West Virginia, and I remember the first time we worshipped at a church. We had done some ministry up there for years, and the, I'd heard that the pastor asked one of the visitors to come back when he had a belt on. It blew my mind. I mean, I can't even understand that. But we can do these things. So it has a divisive characteristic to it. It divides people. In other words, yeah, you can be with us. Well, you can be part of us, but you're not really of us unless you think and dress and act the same way that we do. And that's, that's a fruit of man-made religion. But also so is this idea of arrogance and condemnation. You know, if you have a certain set of rules that you really want to live by, and you're doing well with this microscopic precision. You're able to keep those rules. And then you look differently at those that don't have the same ability that you do to keep with the same precision that you have those rules, that you tend to look down on them. That's what these Pharisees were like. Did you notice the scene? It says, as they went through the grain fields. Now, have you ever thought, why in the world was, were these Pharisees out in the grain fields? Well, then they were, they were picayune people. They were scrutinizing Christ. They're out there following him, looking to catch him to do something. That's the nature of the legalist. It's the nature of the one following a man-made religion. I want to make sure that everybody's doing what I'm doing, and if, I'm not, if they're not, then they, then they earn my judgment. And that's why they, they trap them. They try to bait them. They leave to destroy them. There's a certain arrogance that flows out of the life of the person that's struggling with legalism. Not just arrogance, though joylessness. You know, if you're a Christian here and you're trying to relate to God 
based upon the code of ethics that you're keeping, you will find a lack of joy. Why? Because you can't do it. You cannot do it. These Pharisees had built up this red tape on the Sabbath. You couldn't take more than 3,000 steps. You couldn't carry more weight than that of a dried fig. You couldn't spit in the ground, because if you did and you kicked dirt in it, you'd be considered making bricks. I mean, that kind of is a constrictive, well, that's what they came up with. And, and, and folks, we laugh at it now, but I'll tell you, they were really trying to honor God. That's the deceiving thing about legalism. That's the deceiving thing about man-made religion, is they thought they were honoring God. They would, if he came in the room right now, a Pharisee, they'd say, hey, we spent 400 plus years in Babylon because we didn't honor the Sabbath. We're not going to do that again. We don't want to go back there anymore. But that's the deceptive nature. There's a joylessness to it because there's a burden to it. You can't keep it. I always notice when I'm finding myself struggling, either coming out of sin or I'm having trouble approaching God, I'm feeling distant from God, or I'm feeling a lack of joy kind of pervasive throughout my life, I always go back to, what am I, how am I relating to God? If I think I have to relate to God based upon my behavior and not on the behavior of Christ, the Son, then I know that joy just fades away. And it makes me want to run back to the gospel. But not just that. Another fruit of legalism or man-made religion is this idea of just a lack of charity, a lack of mercy. Look at these Pharisees. When the disciples are hungry, they've been called of God, they're doing the work of God, they're walking through the fields, they're just hungry. Let them eat something. No, they can't eat. It's the Sabbath. Don't rub any grain between your hands. Don't eat any kernels. I, I mean, come on, really? Or, or how about the withered hand? The guy with the withered hand. Presumably, he's had that for a long time. They're saying he can wait a day. Well, hold it now. In Mark's gospel, it says it was his right hand. In an agrarian society, most people being right-handed, a right hand is really important. You're going to make them wait another day? Come on, I mean, he's been waiting for years. I can be healed, I've got to wait till tomorrow? There's a certain lack of charity. There's a mean-spiritedness that flows out of the life. of, And that's why he says about here, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Keep your rules, extend mercy instead. So if, if you're here and you've always seen Christianity as kind of this rule-keeping uh, faith. That's a caricature. That's not the Christian faith. I'm going to explain what it is in a minute, but it's not that. If you're here, and you really push yourself to keep the rules, and you really punish yourself when you don't keep the rules, then I would ask you to rethink the nature of the gospel. What does it mean to rest in the merits of Christ? What does it mean to believe in the beauty of the gospel that one has been a substitute for me. If you, if you are bold and arrogant in the rules that you keep, and you find it easy to judge those who are different than you, that don't keep the same code of ethic that you do, I think you need to go back and understand what grace means. What does it mean to be saved by grace? If you're relating to God based upon this set of criteria, and I don't mean I believe that most of you that would struggle with this believes that Jesus died for your sin. But then you add to that these things that you must do. Otherwise, it's not really any good. And that denies the very gospel that you're believing in. You kind of see it. And, and Christians, we're not insulated from this at all. Why? Legalism is great. We love legalism. Why? Well, because it's measurable. We can see how well we're doing. 
We can say, look at me, I've read my Bible every day this week. I feel really good about myself and how I can relate to God. And there's a real sense of measurability. But don't fall into this, this Galatian controversy. Remember the church at Galatia that Paul wrote his letter to. They believe the gospel. But then what he says to them, he says, who's bewitched you? They believed in the gospel, they were saved by the gospel, but then they begin trusting in all their works, leaving them feeling as if now we're right with God because we're practicing circumcision and we're honoring the Sabbath. I think many of us, if I were to guess, we would struggle more with being the older brother than the younger brother. So let me draw your mind to the parable of the prodigal son. You remember him, the younger brother, dad, give me my portion. I'm going to go out and blow it on parties, parties, parties. He ends up with the pigs. He comes to his senses. He recognizes the greatness of God, and he repents of his sins. He goes to his father, and he says, forgive me. I've been a louse. I've been a lousy son. Just make me a slave. I just want to be with you. I've seen what the world has to offer. I don't even want it anymore. The older brother is outside. He's seething. He's seething with anger when the party's going on, and he says to him, his dad comes out, his dad's so gracious, and says, son, your brother, he was dead, now he's alive. Let's rejoice together with him. He goes, you never threw me a party. I did this, and I did this, and I did this. What's the older brother doing? He's counting on everything he's been doing. He's resting on all of the things that he did. He had no understanding of the mercy of his father. He had no understanding of the love of his father. He was blind to it, even though he was living with it. That's a lot of us. That is a lot of us. And I'll tell you, he needs to repent of his religion, just like the other man needed to repent of his licentiousness. Perhaps that is you. Perhaps you've longed in considering, or you have related to God always by what you do, that you're up and down in terms of how well you're doing. And it is drudgery. I can sympathize and empathize with you. It is heavy because you cannot do it. That is the purpose of the gospel, and that's the purpose of Christ. Look at how Jesus confronts these. So that's kind of false religion, that's man-made religion, that's legalism, and that's the fruit We want to steer clear of that. Let me introduce you to something different. This is what Christianity is, and you're going to see it centered right in Jesus Christ. Look at how Jesus responds to them. He says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? Now, right there, that's an implicit rebuke to the Pharisees. Why? Because they were the students of the Word. They were the ones studying the Bible. They were the ones teaching the Bible. He says, haven't you read this one? Did you skip this chapter? Did you miss this when you were reading it? And what he's doing is they're confronting him for eating grain on the Sabbath. And so he goes back to the scriptures and he speaks about David. Now, this story comes from 1 Samuel 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21. In this story, David's running from Saul. Saul, of course, has turned against God. He's chasing David. David is God's man and he's hungry with his men. He's starving. There is no food. He goes to the tabernacle and he says, please give us some food. They had no food to give him. They only had the bread of presence. Those were 12 loaves of bread that were every week baked fresh and set out before the Lord. They were representing Israel before God. And so the priest, Ahimelech, gave David the bread. Hmm. You weren't supposed to do that. Only the priests were to eat that holy bread. But he gave it to David because the need demanded it. And so Jesus is saying, don't you remember? David got all that holy bread. David wasn't a priest. His men weren't priests. And God didn't condemn him. Why? Because God loves mercy. God loves mercy more than sacrifice. And so he gave him the bread. This priest set aside a divine law to meet the needs of David. And so Jesus is saying, why are you condemning us for eating heads of grain? 
We're not even, one greater than David is here with you, and you don't even see it. I'm the son of David. I'm a greater king than David. And I'm just, rub, I'm just setting aside the, the rules of men, not the rules of God. So he confronts him there, but look at next, in verse 5, he says, Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? What he's saying here is that God ordained there to be no work on the Sabbath, but he also ordained that the priests work on the Sabbath. How? Well, they're building fires, they're slaughtering animals, they're carrying basins of blood to the altar. That's a lot of work. And they're not guiltless. Why? Because they're doing it as an act of worship to God. And Jesus says, but someone's greater than the temple is here. So the point is this, that Jesus isn't giving us a new set of rules for how the New Testament Christian can keep the Sabbath. I don't think he's doing that. I think Matthew is identifying Jesus and saying, he's greater than David. He's greater than the temple. God himself has come among us. He is the one that we follow. We love we have faith. We follow him. It's not conditioned upon the rules that you may or may not keep. It's conditioned upon where are you with this one, with the one who is the Son of Man and Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is declaring himself. He says, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is an expression from Daniel 7, 13, and 14. And here's the scene. One, like the Son of Man, comes before the Ancient of Days. That's God. And God gives to this son of man. He gives to him a kingdom that's eternal and powerful and glorious. All authority, all glory is given to this son of man. Jesus designates himself as that. So he's declaring himself to be the one who has stood before God and been given a kingdom for all ages. And he says, I'm the son of man, therefore I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I write the laws of the Sabbath. You come to me. I'm actually your Sabbath. The Sabbath was always pointing to Jesus. See, the Pharisees made much of the details of the Sabbath, and Jesus is saying, I'm your Sabbath. And Jesus doesn't just declare it, he demonstrates it. Look what he does in the next incident. He tells the man, he sees the man with the withered hand, he knows they're trying to trap him. And they do try to accuse him. It shows the shriveledness of the heart of the legalist. I mean, they have no concern for the plight of this man. And so Jesus showing the emptiness and the hypocrisy of man-made or legalistic religion. He shows the hypocrisy of it by saying, if you had a sheep in a pit, would you pull it out? And the implication is, yeah, every single one of them would have. He goes, isn't a man more important than a sheep? And that's why he says, stretch out your hand. The man stretches out his hand, and it's immediately healed. He didn't, Jesus didn't lift a pinky to do work to heal him. He's the Lord of the Sabbath and the man's healed. So what you have here is Jesus coming. What is Christianity? It's not a man-made religion. It's a religion from above. Jesus coming, and he's saying, put your faith in me. Follow me. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the Son of Man. So what Christianity is, in its most essential ingredients, is simply faith. I'm going to follow. I'm going to trust. I'm going to love. I'm going to pursue this one who can lead me to an eternal Sabbath. Now that is going to produce a whole different set of fruit. So the fruit from false religion I gave you, let me just give you a few aspects of the fruit of this faith. There is emancipation. There's freedom with Christ. In other words, there's, you know, Jesus said, uh, Jesus has come and he's 
he's come to be our Sabbath. Remember, in the Old Testament, what Sabbath was, was a day for you to cease working in a broken world. Jesus has come to bring a rest that transcends just, I get Friday and Saturday, or I get Saturday and Sunday off. It, it, his rest transcends that. He's giving us a rest from the weightiness and the burden of the sin that we have. You know how you feel. You walk in a way that is so ungodly and you feel this burden and this distance from God and you feel as though your shoulders droop over it. If you don't, and then there's a whole other problem. But, but the reality of it is that, that we need more than a physical rest. We need a spiritual rest. We know we've been made for something more and yet that something more seems so far away. And Jesus is saying, I've come to give you rest. In fact, here's what's interesting about this passage in 12. If you were to look back, you don't have to, you can later. If you just go back to the previous passage in chapter 11, 25 to 30, here's what Jesus says to set us up for 12. He says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm humble and gentle, and I'll give you rest for your souls. Then he proclaims himself to be Lord of the rest, Lord of the Sabbath. That Jesus has come, don't you want that rest? I mean, don't you want to be freed from dragging the, the ghosts of your past and the skeletons of your past? I mean, don't you want to walk free of all the guilt and the shame that you feel? And Jesus is the one, and the reason he can proclaim this rest is he knows he's going to be the one dying for our sins. And if Jesus Christ, through the gospel, dies for our sins, we don't have to die for them. We don't have to pay for them. He has come to save us from the penalty of our sin, the penalty of death. There is so much rest in Christ. There's acceptance with God. There's the deliverance of guilt and shame. So, so you know the fruit of the Christian life is one of freedom. We are happy people. We're happy people because he is stood in our stead and he has reconciled us to the Father. There is a rest. There is a peace. If you have any sort of understanding of the depth of depravity of our souls, you are thankful to the one who has delivered you from that. But also there's a celebration with this faith in Christ. There ought to be a celebration. You, if you're a Christian, you're now reconciled to God. You have been made right with God through another. You have this idea that Jesus is the Son of Man. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He has a kingdom given to him that will never fade, that will never perish. You are forever with him. I mean, imagine that. We are under this growing threat of terrorism, Islam, the Middle East. It's just getting the headlines galore. And yet he stands as the Son of Man and Lord of the Sabbath. They are not running roughshod. He sits at the right hand of God above all rule, authority, above all power and dominion. There is nothing that happens to the hairs of his children apart from his perfect will. There is a celebration in that, folks, that we, in the midst of the gloom and the doom of this world, we stand uniquely happy in him. We celebrate his work. We don't have to worry, he said. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Your heavenly Father knows, those, knows you need those things. He'll provide them for you. seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. I mean, think about the points of celebration that we ought to have if he truly is who he says he is. But not just, he, not just for emancipation and celebration, but for reorientation. 
believing that Jesus is the Son of Man ought to reorient us. Now, here's what I mean by this. I've been speaking a lot about rules, 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 and about how he's come to just establish himself. And I, you know, if you were a detailed person, you might think, whoa, we're sliding from legalism into license. We're sliding from moralism into relativism. Not so. I mean, saying that we don't measure ourselves with God based upon our rules doesn't mean we don't care about the law of God. Doesn't mean we don't care about being holy. We just want to reorient our pursuit of holiness. Our pursuit of holiness is fueled by a love for God now, not a fear of God as if I don't do these things, I won't be accepted. That's why Jesus said in John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Isn't that true? That's why Augustine said that famous quote. He says, love God and do what you want. Now that could really be abused. That could really be abused. Well, I love God, so I'll just do this stuff. No, no, no. If, if you love God, your love tethers you to God so that you don't just live with license, but you pursue. But it's birthed out of a, it's birthed out of a love for him. So my, my desire to walk in a manner worthy of my wife is not driven by duty, as if I have to do it, but it, it's driven by love. And her to me, that, that, that there is a love that causes her to want to walk in a manner that's right for our marriage. It's not duty. If it's duty, without love, that's, it's, it's robotic. It, it, isn't, it, isn't, it isn't drawn out of the grace of God. So it ought to reorient us. And I would ask you, I would ask you, do you seek to be holy because of your love for God or because your fear of God that he'll turn aside from you? Again, it's an indicator. But not just reorientation, but also demonstration. If you have a faith in Jesus as the Lord of the Sabbath, then it's going to flow out of your life in demonstrative ways, particularly in mercy. You notice the mercy. It's good. It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Folks, faith in Christ will naturally produce a concern for the poor, the broken, the disenfranchised. A a faith in Christ, knowing that we've been delivered by the mercy of God, is going to produce in us a desire for racial and economic justice in the spheres of life in which we live. Religion, or fa- true religion, I would say, cannot be idle. In fact, James 1.27 says that religion that God the Father accepts as pure and blameless is what? To care for the orphan and the widow. It has a practical impact. That's why James says, he says, Faith without works is dead. He says, I'll show you my faith by my works. Do you see this in your life? Do you have these works? Do you have them coming forth out of a desire because you love them, not because you have to or nobody else would do it? And then last, a fruit of true faith in Christ is going to be seen in your anticipation. Do you ever spend time thinking about the day that you'll see him face to face? How often does that occupy a thought of yours? Now, as you get older... You know, you have all these other physical reminders that that day is coming faster than you want it to come. But, but there is an anticipation that ought to be involved in the heart of the believer. An anticipation that one day, all that is evil and wicked and brutal and nasty about this world is going to be undone. It's all going to be undone. It's going to be made perfectly right. He says in Revelation 21, he says, Then I saw that John, you know, in the uh, vision says, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. And he says, on that day, God will dwell with man. He'll wipe away every tear, mourning, crying, and pain. The old order of things will pass away. 
it's going to be all new. For us to live in this life with faith in Christ, there has to be an eye cast to the next life, to that final Sabbath. That's what it is. It's a final Sabbath. So if you're a Christian here, do you sense the emancipation that has been brought to you in Christ? Do you feel the freedom from sin and guilt? Do you have a heart of celebration to Christ? I mean, do you feel that reorientation that you want to be holy because he is good, not because he may turn against you? I mean, do you have that desire in your life? Is there fruit of demonstrative acts of mercy and kindness to those who perhaps don't warrant such kindness, just as you didn't warrant his grace and mercy? Do you see those in your life? If you don't, don't leave in despair. Repent. Repent and ask God for greater grace to walk in a manner worthy of his gospel. This is the beauty of the gospel. We can be honest and we can say that we don't have it all down cold, that that we don't have it. This is the beauty of the gospel is that we are given freedom to look at ourselves objectively and truthfully and move with confession. That's the beauty of the gospel. Remember, it's the sinners and the tax collectors and the prostitutes that were getting ahead into the kingdom, ahead of the Pharisees and the religious leaders because they knew they needed the gospel, and so they were accepted in the gospel. Now, if, as a church here, corporately speaking, if someone were to assess us, would they say that we're marked by Reformed theology or by a deep, passionate love for Christ? Are, are we marked by being politically and socially conservative or that we extend mercy to those who aren't deserving of it? Are we marked as a church by kind of looking the same and acting the same and reading the same magazines and listening to the same radio stations? Or would they see us as lovers of the gospel? Because if they see us on these other fronts, we're pointed in the wrong direction. It's the gospel. That's the gravitational pull. Faith in Christ alone. Now, if you're a non-Christian here, I, I hope... This has challenged your view of Christianity. If you've thought it to be, I've got to do these things, I hope that's been challenged for you. I hope you see that Jesus actually challenged the same religion that you may be challenging. But I also hope you see that if he proclaims him to be Lord, if he proclaims himself to be Lord of the Sabbath, that draws a response from you. In fact, let, let me give you a quote from from one author regarding the nature of this statement, he says, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become a human or that fire has become flesh or that life itself became life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it's a sham, a bit of deceitful play acting. I mean, that's what it is. Jesus making this claim, I'm the son of man, the Lord of the Sabbath, either he's a sham and he's a fool and he's just trying to dupe all of us, or if it's true, it's a devastating reality and it ought to change the way that you have seen Christ. If you have questions about it, if you have questions about this, after the service, I'd ask you to come forward or speak to someone next to you. Let me pray for us and then we'll prepare our hearts for uh, communion. Father, thank you for the grace and the mercy that you have given to us in Jesus. Thank you for revealing to us that which is in us that is of a human origin in terms of relating to you. Forgive us 
for our latent legalism. Forgive us for our rule keeping, thinking that you could somehow be impressed by my code of ethics, even though I can't even keep it. Father, please forgive us for that. Reveal to each one of us where that may be in our lives, that we might confess it and run from it, that we would run not just from that, but to Christ, to the one who is the Lord of the Sabbath. Thank you for revealing him in Scripture to us. Thank you that he has come to deliver us, to bring freedom to our lives, freedom from sin. Thank you for giving him to us that we can celebrate again, that we can rejoice in all that we have and all that he has done, that we are now party to that. Father, thank you for caring for us and our weakness. May out of our lives come a concern for those who are as weak and broken. May we be love, may we love to extend mercy to those so undeserving of it. Just as a demonstration of what we have partook of and what we have enjoyed. Father, would you change us today? Would you convict those who are still struggling? Lead them to repentance. Grant them repentance. Father, for the person still struggling with, is this all true? Is it all right? Father, would you pull back the curtain and reveal your glory as Jesus has just declared it to us? Father, would you cause us to be a church that is not known for a certain slice of theology or or a conservatism or dressing? Father, those things are going to pass. May we be people centered on Christ and Christ alone. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.